Two things before I pray. First, we're working through a lot of material in a short amount of time, which leaves little to no time for in-class questions. I'm doing my best to anticipate what some of those questions are and answer them in the actual lessons, but make sure that you send me an email if there's any questions you'd like answered that we don't get to in here. Second, following this series, beginning April 8th, we'll start another Sunday School series called Grounded in the Gospel, which will be a look at a Reformed Baptist catechism. So it almost works as a sort of sequel to this class. I'm using technology this morning, which I have very little faith in, but I'm going to try. I have some different slides. There's, there's a, a, a graphic that I want to try to draw for you that's been really helpful for me. As well, I want to show you some things in three or four of the scriptures that we're looking at that I find helpful to see represented sort of visually. If any of you have seen what John Piper does called Look at the Book, uh, I'm just trying to imitate that. I'm trying to do what, what he does using, using technology. But I haven't done this before, so it may work, it may not work, it might be good for you, it might be terrible for you. I don't know, but we'll give, it, we'll give it a shot. I welcome your feedback afterwards. Last thing before I pray, in your handout, there's going to be more verses than we'll actually read today. So I've loaded that handout with more verses than we will have time to cover. And there's, there's so many more. I mean, on my handout, I've got, I think, twice as many verses as are in your handout. So if you'd like more of those, of course, you can email me too. So let's pray. And we'll get started with today's lesson. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to study these doctrines of grace. Help us, God, in our time together, uh, each class and cumulatively to grasp what it is that you have done to save us so that our hearts would be filled with gratitude and you would get the praise and the glory that you deserve. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So why the I instead of you next? You for unconditional election is next in the acrostic tulip. right? Because we covered T last week. It precedes the other three, L, I, and P, it precedes those other three graces in the order of God's salvation, right? He elects, that's you. Christ atones, that's L. The Holy Spirit quickens, that's I. And the believer is kept, that's P. That's the, that's the, the order. But you is not next in the, the Christian experience, which is basically why we're not jumping to you next. I mean, I didn't find out about, about you until long after I had experienced the, the other doctrines of grace. I is next. I is the next thing, irresistible grace that we experience as Christians and can be related to by every single one of you if you're a Christian. So I do think it's a better place to start for believers who have never studied these doctrines of grace before. I think it's going to be more helpful if we go to I before we get to get to election, which can be a little more difficult, but I think is, is easier to understand and, and makes more sense if we work through these others first. So here again is John Piper's summary of total depravity. That's what we looked at last week, and this is from his book, Five Points. It's in your handout from last week. When we speak of man's depravity, we mean man's natural condition apart from any grace exerted by God to restrain or transform man. So total depravity is just your condition apart from God's grace. So if God doesn't do anything else to you, in you, that's your natural condition, yours, mine, is total depravity. And we said the following, we said total depravity affects every human. No one escapes this. Total depravity affects the whole person, all of you, 
It affects you so that everything man does is sin. Man is unable to do anything truly good, including faith and repentance. And man is deserving of eternal punishment. So to summarize, man is totally helpless in his need for salvation. It's a desperate condition we're in. He needs to be saved from sin, from himself, from the wrath of God. But there is nothing he can do to save himself. That's total depravity. Now, the last words of every worship service here are, you probably can remember them, for those of you who are not in Christ, turn to Him and what? Be saved. And every week, when I say that, because of the truth we studied last week, I know that those who are not in Christ cannot turn to Him. So you're going to need to bear with me now. So every week, I say, for those of you who are not in Christ, may you turn to Him now and be saved. And when I say that, I know, based on what we studied last week, that not a single one of those individuals that are here who are not yet in Christ, I know that not one of them is actually able to do what I'm calling them to do. They are dead in sin. This is last week. They are blind to the glory of Christ. They are without the Holy Spirit and incapable of spiritual understanding. They have hard hearts and the gospel bounces off of those hearts like bullets off a rock. They are enslaved to their desire to turn away from Jesus. Not turn to Jesus. They receive grace and resist it. They receive grace and resist it. God graciously brings the good news of the gospel to their ears, just like he uses you to bring the gospel to other ears, and they resist it. You did this. You've seen others do this. They're like the Israelites in Isaiah 65, 12. I will destine you to the sword, God says, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. They're resisting God's grace. Or they're like the people in Acts 7, 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and Ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. So God's grace is, is being resisted. I know based on what we studied last week that man in his natural condition is going to resist his grace. They are not going to, they are not able to respond to that call every week to turn to Jesus and be saved. So if all of that is true, and it is, then how did you become a Christian? How did I become a Christian? And you say, I believed. How did you believe? Why did you believe and the person next to you who heard the same gospel message did not. Now, there's basically two possibilities. Either man overcomes his resistance to God or God overcomes man's resistance to God. Those are the two possibilities. Either man overcomes that resistance or God overcomes man's resistance. And the predominant teaching today, you know this, is the former. That's the predominant teaching. It teaches that God sends Jesus to die, sends an evangelist to preach, and then he puts his hands in his pocket, basically. 
He sends Jesus to die, sends an evangelist to preach, but that's it. God woos, he nudges, but then God backs off. He's a gentleman. He leaves the ball in your court. He leaves the decisive step in our hands. That's the predominant teaching today. That's what I grew up learning. This is what Arthur Pink said about that position in 1930. The God of present day is a helpless, effeminate being who commands the respect of no really thoughtful man. The God of today's pulpit is an object of pity rather than of awe-inspiring reverence. To argue that God is trying his best to save all mankind, but that the majority of men will not let him save them, is to insist that the will of the creator is impotent and that the will of the creature is omnipotent. This is to dethrone God. Well, thankfully, that's not true. You did not overcome your own rebellion. God overcame your rebellion with irresistible grace. Here's what this grace is, according to, again, John Piper. Irresistible grace is God's work in us by which he overcomes our resistance to God and unfailingly brings about the act of saving faith. Here's what this is saying. God's grace will be resisted. You resist it. You resisted it. Others resist it. God's grace will be resisted until God wills to overcome your resistance. That word until is very important. God's grace will be resisted until God wills to overcome your resistance. The Bible has many ways of talking about this irresistible grace. So let's work through five arguments. You have them in your handout. Let's work through five arguments. I want you to see this irresistible grace in your Bible. The headings of these arguments I've borrowed from John Piper's teaching series, The Pursuit of God's Glory in Salvation. Let's work through them one at a time. Number one. We cannot come to Christ unless God draws us. John 6.44 No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It says in order for someone to come to Christ, the Father must draw him. This is irresistible grace. Now some would say, Arminians assert that God does this drawing for all. It's called prevenient grace. God draws all men, and that's based on the universal love and fairness of God. But they also would assert that this drawing that goes out to all men is resistible. So is that true? Is it true that this verse is saying that no one can come to God, no one can come to Christ unless the Father draws him, but God draws everyone and then some resist and some receive. Well, if you look at that verse in context, it's not true. That's not what this verse is teaching. Look at verses 63 through 65. This is later on. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Who's he talking about? Judas. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father. Now, that's a great verse because Jesus is, is saying, hey, you remember what I said a few verses before? This is why I said that to you. So he's expositing his own text. And what is his reason? His reason is this. This text, John six forty four. no one comes to the Father 
or to me unless the father draws him. This text, Jesus is saying, answers the question as to why Judas did not believe. Because that's a really good question. How could Judas not believe? How could you live and walk with Jesus and minister with him for three years and not believe? How is that possible? And what's Jesus' answer? He did not believe because he was not drawn by the Father. That's the difference. John 6.37, and there's more. We won't read them all. All that the Father gives me, there's the drawing again, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So the second part of that verse, whoever comes to Jesus will never be cast out. That's true and we can preach that. Anyone, everyone, turn to Jesus and be saved. Whoever comes to Jesus will not be cast out. But what else does that verse tell us? Who comes to Jesus? All that the Father gives me will come to me. Number two. God's effectual calling overcomes resistance to the gospel. This is another phrase, another theological term used to describe irresistible grace. It is effectual calling. So look at this verse with me. And I have the verse up on the slide as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 through 24. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. There's two groups he's talking about here, the Jews and the Greeks. The Jews want signs. The Greeks want wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews. So it's a stumbling block to the Jews. And folly to the Gentiles. But now here's a third group of people. Those who are called and they respond differently both Jews and Greeks Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God so here's what's happening here so you have two groups of people the Jews and the Greeks the Jews want signs the Greeks want wisdom and then you have Christians preaching we preach Christ crucified And when the Jews hear that, it's a stumbling block for the Jews. And when the Greeks hear it, it's folly to the Greeks. But then there's another group, those who are called both Jews and Greeks. So they're within the Jews and the Greeks. It's some of those Jews and the Greeks. And when they hear the gospel, it's not a stumbling block. It is not folly. It is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So here's what we're seeing in this verse. There is a general and a special call here going out. One goes out while the other goes straight to the heart and produces an effect. In one sense, all these people were called, right? The Jews and the Greeks... Christ crucified was preached to all of them. Turn to Jesus and be saved. But only those who were effectually called, is the word we're using to describe this calling, those who were effectually called actually come to Christ. This calling is effectual because it produces a desired result. This grace is irresistible because it overcomes our resistance. Romans 8.30 And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. 
That's a different calling. That's not the calling that goes out to every Christian. Come to Jesus and be saved. The reason we know that's not what this calling is, is because when that calling goes out, everybody doesn't get saved. But all of these called get saved. Look at Romans 8.30. It starts with predestination. There's predestination. We'll get to that in a few weeks. And all those he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. So everyone who is called is justified. And everyone who is justified is glorified. You see, so no one gets lost in there. They're predestined, then they're called, then they're justified, then they're glorified. So that's a different calling than I'm doing after every service here. The calling that I'm doing during every service is preaching Christ crucified. All you Jews, all you Greeks, turn to Jesus and be saved. And then I'm praying that God would do verse 24. Now, I'm doing this big call here, but now will you effectually call them so that it's not foolishness to them? That's stupid. That's dumb. It's not a stumbling block to them, but that they would hear the gospel and they think that is the power of God. That is the wisdom of God. And they would believe. Okay, number three. The new birth enables us to receive Christ. The new birth or regeneration or born again enables us to receive Christ. Regeneration is the instantaneous act of God whereby he raises you from spiritual death to life and you are born again. You are reborn. God has made you alive. He has made you a new creation. That enables you to then receive Christ. Look at a couple of verses. 1 John 5.1 Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. This is past tense. So this is saying that everyone who believes before they believed, they were born of God. So this is number two, and that's number one. So it's being born of God that enabled them to receive Christ. Or we see the same thing in John chapter one, verses 11 through 13. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So they resisted him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God who very important word were born. That's number one. That's number two. The new birth enabled them to receive him. The new birth enabled them to believe in his name. Who were born. Not of blood. Nor of he's not talking about physical birth here, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Did I make myself born again? Did I decide to be born again? No, but. Of God. So the new birth enables us to receive Christ. You can look at John 3, 3 through 8 later. That's the conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus. There shouldn't be books on how to be born again. But there is. Billy Graham wrote a book. The name of the book is How to Be Born Again. Chuck Smith wrote a book. It's not the exact title. I don't remember the exact title, but it's basically How to Be Born Again. But with this understanding, there shouldn't be books on how to be born again. 
This was the point Jesus was making to Nicodemus. This is not something that you can make happen. This is not something you can do to yourself. Being born again is a work of the Spirit. Let me compare it to the wind, is what Jesus does. Okay, you don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going. This is how this is up to God. This is a work that God does. He causes someone to be born again. And when they're born again, they receive Christ. They believe in his names. We're already saying number four, aren't we? That means number four, faith and repentance are a gift from God. Faith and repentance are a gift from God. This is revolutionary for some of you. Regeneration precedes faith and repentance. That's the opposite of what I was raised to believe. It's the exact opposite. It's probably the opposite of what you were raised to believe. Most of you have heard it this way. Faith, repentance, regeneration. But that's not in the Bible. In the verses we've looked at and in the verses we will look at. Rather, regeneration. Faith. Repentance. Not only is that more, far more logical, it's biblical. First, faith is a gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. What's not your own doing? Grace. Faith. It, and that it, if you study this text, is referring to the grace, the faith, all of that. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. By the way, why is it a gift of God? So that no one may boast. No, I had faith. That's the difference between me and the person next to me. When we heard the gospel, we heard the same message I had faith. That's the difference. I overcame my resistance. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 speaks to that person and says, don't do that. That's not true. You did have faith and the other person did not. But you had faith because it was a gift from God. I overcame your resistance. I drew you to Christ. I caused you to be born again. I gave you new life. And like a baby who's brand new born cries out for mom. When you were born again spiritually, the first thing you did was cry out in faith. God caused us to be born again. Not just faith. Repentance is a gift from God. Second Timothy 2, 24 through 26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So what's Paul saying to Timothy? Listen, you have people who are in the snare of the devil. They have been captured by him to do his will. They're enslaved to the enemy. These aren't believers. They don't love God. And so what does Paul tell them to do? He says, don't be quarrelsome with them. don't, Don't fight with them. Be kind to them. Teach them. Teach them. Patiently endure evil. Correct them with gentleness. And then what's the hope that Paul gives? Do all that for those that are ensnared by the devil. For those who are doing his will. Teach them. And what's the hope? God may grant them repentance. Not you'll make them repent. Not they may repent. But God may, what's the word? Grant. It's a gift. God may grant them repentance. What about the apostles when they heard that even the Gentiles were believing and many of them thought that was not possible? Acts eleven eighteen. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God saying, 
then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. It doesn't say they fell silent and said, way to go, Gentiles. It doesn't even say they fell silent because the Gentiles have repented. They fell silent because God had granted the Gentiles repentance. It's a gift from God. We see the same thing in Acts chapter 16, 14. This is what God did for Lydia. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. So why did she respond to Paul's message? The Lord opened her heart. This is effectual calling. This is irresistible grace. This is you're going to resist Lydia was going to resist until God overcame that resistance and said, I'm going to open your heart now. And when I open your heart, you will respond. And she did. She responded to Paul's message. Okay. This next verse, let's take a couple minutes on. This is really helpful. This text in 2 Chronicles chapter 30. If we can identify and understand the framework here, we will see everything differently, including what God has done in us. So let's read. This is Hezekiah, Hezekiah, a good king, uh, bad people. And so he sends out a message to the people. You need to repent. He sends out a message from God. So let's read this. He sent couriers. So couriers, you can read on your outline or on your handout or up here if you can read it. So couriers went throughout all Israel and Judah with letters from the king and his princes, as the king had commanded, saying, O people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. So you see what God is saying? If you do this, then I will do this. That's the message. If you return to God, that, what will he do? He will turn again to you. And you're going to see that over and over again. If you do this, then God will do this. Turn to Jesus and be saved. And what's the promise every week? If you turn to Jesus, he will save you. If then. Verse 7. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were faithless to the Lord God of their fathers so that he made them a desolation as you see. Do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were. He's saying don't resist. Don't resist. But yield yourselves to the Lord and come to his sanctuary which he has consecrated forever and serve the Lord your God that, here's the if then, if you do that, that, His fierce anger may turn away from you. If then, if then, verse 9. For if you return to the Lord your God, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. If. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away His face from you if, there it is again, if you return to Him. So that doesn't sound any different than what we say today. Place your faith in Christ. Repent. Turn to Christ. And if you do, you will be saved. This is the call that goes out to all people. It's the call that went out to all the people of Israel. Turn. Turn from your sin. Turn to Christ. That's true. Amen. Now here's the question. Is there more? Is there more going on here? Or is that it? Turn to Jesus and be saved. Does everyone put their hands in their pocket at that point? Including God. And now it's up to the free will of man and the free will of woman. God steps back. Well, I've drawn everyone. Can't play favorites here. The ball is in their court. I'm a gentleman. If you return, I will save you. Is that it? 
Look at these verses. Look at these next verses. So, the couriers went from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh. And as far as Zebulun, they laughed. Has that ever happened to you when you shared the gospel? They laughed them to scorn and mocked them. What are they doing? They're resisting that call. They're resisting the good news. They're resisting the gospel. However, not everybody resisted. Some men of Asher, of Manasseh, and of Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. So they responded favorably. They didn't resist this good news. They received this good news. And what do you want to know? Why? Why, why, did, they, why did some respond differently? That Everybody's laughing and mocking, but some humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. Verse 20, verse 12. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. So you get the picture. Everyone's laughing, everyone's mocking, except for some men in Asher, some men in Manasseh and those in Judah. Now it says for those in Judah, what did God do? He gave them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. But look at verse 12. It's the one, two, three, four, five, sixth word. Also. And that word means also. So what we're being told here is that what happened to these men and women in Judah, that's what happened for those in Asher and Manasseh. Also, God did this also for those in Judah. So what was the difference For those who responded to this call. The Lord gave them one heart to do. To obey. So there's a framework there. Number one, we must will to come to God. We must do something. We're not robots. That doesn't just zap us. We must do something. We must turn to Christ. Secondly, if we do that something, God will respond. That's clearly being taught here and elsewhere. And if we do that, something God will respond. And then third, God enables some to will. Not all of them. But God enables some of them to will. So imagine this. This was a, well, not exactly this. I guess this is my own illustration now because it's, it's morphed over the years. But. Imagine that everybody is walking blindfolded to hell. This is the natural condition of man. Right? We, don't, we don't see. Okay? We're, we're all walking to hell. But we're blindfolded. People come and preach to us and tell us the gospel. Hey, you're running to hell, but we just feel the heat. We think it's the beach. Right? So we're just happily moving forward. No, that's silly. That's foolishness. That's an obstacle. That's a stumbling block. No, but we hear it. And we just ignore it, right? And we keep going in the same direction. Now, this is not what God does. Some people believe this. God does not pull up a pickup truck, right? Tie you up, hog tie you, throw you in the back of the truck and, and take you to salvation. That's, that's not, I hope you see that's not the picture we're being taught here in Scripture. And that's not the only way God has to save somebody who's just blindfolded resistance. God simply removes the blindfold. He simply removes the blindfold. He gives you eyes. Here's the biblical terms. He gives you eyes to see. He gives you ears to hear. He he takes your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. 
He gives you the Holy Spirit that you could understand things that are spiritually discerned. He raises you from spiritual death to life. These are all the biblical ways that this is talked about. And when he gives you eyes to see, and when he gives you ears to hear, and when he raises you from spiritual death to life, and when he causes you to be born again, and when he takes your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh, you believe. You respond in faith. So here's the picture I wanted to draw for you. We're just about done. So this represents God. Can you see that? Is that a bad color? Okay. And here's, you know, in our text, this was Hezekiah. He doesn't have legs. Sorry. He, in, Hezekiah had legs. <laughs> and so God gives Hezekiah a message, right? And he says, I want you. Right to send these couriers, and I want you to tell these non-believers over here, tell them that if they will turn, I will save them. And this is what we this is what we're doing every time we preach the gospel. Right? God says in Romans ten, how will they how will they believe ultimately if a preacher doesn't go and preach the good news? This is, the, this is what we've all been called to do. We are, in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Jesus looked out and said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And we say, come to him, all you who are weary and burdened, and he will give you rest. We say John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes. And we say, believe, be one of those whoever who believes and come to him that you may be saved. So this is what we want people to do. We want them to respond. And if you respond and come to Jesus, you will be saved. But what do we know about that person based on what we studied last week? Hard heart dead in sin, blind to the glory of Christ, deaf, unable to discern spiritual things. So what are we learning through irresistible grace? We're learning that in order for this person to believe, I know this is really cheesy. <laughs> wow, it looks like a five-year-old drew that. If this is irresistible grace, this is God bringing this person to life, this is God giving them a heart of flesh. And so, right, let me ask you, when, when you're in this situation and, and you're the believer... Okay. For example, technically, uh, an Arminian, someone who doesn't believe in irresistible grace, has to do this. That, that doesn't exist. God has drawn everyone the same. It's up to this person to make the decisive step for their salvation. So, when you're in this situation, you're sharing the gospel with your mom or your dad or your son or your daughter or your brother or your sister or your neighbor or your coworker or your friend. God has called you to preach the gospel. He's called you to live a life worthy of the manner, a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. You're living that way. You're preaching the gospel and you're calling people to repent. You're calling people to believe. But here's the question at that point. What are you praying? What are you praying? Now, as best I understand it, there is a lot of theology out there that has nothing left for you to pray at that point. There's nothing left to pray. Well, I'll tell you what I'm praying. I'm praying 
I'm praying, God, will you, will you take my son's heart of stone and give him a heart of flesh? I'm praying, will you raise Avery to spiritual life? I'm praying, will you take the blindfold off of my brother? I'm praying that will, will, will my brother-in-law not just hear the gospel out of my mouth in his ears, but will he hear it from you in his heart? Because I know that if he does, he, she will respond to the gospel. This is irresistible grace. Finally, number five, we won't read all the verses. The new covenant promises grace that will triumph over resistance. The Old Testament promises the day when this is going to happen. Let me read you a few of the verses. Deuteronomy 29, 2 through 4. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, they've resisted. Why? But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. But here's the promise in the next chapter, 36. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Same thing, a promise about the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like, here's how it's going to be different, not like the old covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hands to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, here's what was different about that one, that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. What about the new covenant? Will they break it? But this is the new covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Next chapter, 3240. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. And then those famous passages in Ezekiel where he promises to take the heart of stone and to give a heart of flesh. So can we answer our in conclusion? Can we answer the question we asked at the very beginning? How or why? Why did you believe and the person next to you did not? How did you become a Christian? God opened your heart like he did with Lydia. God caused you to be born again like John chapter 3. God, like Deuteronomy 29 and 30, he gave you eyes to see. He gave you ears to hear. Deuteronomy 30 and Ezekiel 36 and Ezekiel 11. He took your heart of stone. He changed your heart. He circumcised your heart. He cut you to the heart. He gave you a new heart that was soft. That would receive the good news and believe. He raised you from the dead. He called you. Now here's what's supposed to happen. When you first begin to understand this. Your gratitude goes through the roof. I never would have said that. When I was an Arminian, I talked like a Calvinist. And if you asked me why I believed, I would say. God changed my heart. I wouldn't say I believed. Why did you believe? Because. I just did it. I'm a faith, I'm a faithful kind of guy. Well, my circumstances and I was more open and I'm spiritual. Uh, I, 
I wouldn't have said that. I would have said God changed my heart. That's why. That's why I'm a believer. But I never really thought about it. And then to take all these texts and to take this doctrine again that they they cherished and fought for in the 17th century. And, and, and to begin to take all those scriptures and to pack those around my conversion and to understand more what was really happening behind the scenes and what was going on and what was happening underneath and why did I believe? Why did I have faith? All boasting goes out the window. All bragging goes out the window. And I'm, I'm left in awe of God's gratitude. In awe of God's gratitude. Especially when you compound it with the things that we'll look at in weeks to come. Let me close with, close with this quote from R.C. Sproul from What is Reformed Theology? And then I'll pray. He says about this doctrine. Here we reach the ultimate point of separation between semi-Pelagianism and Augustinianism, between Arminianism and Calvinism, between Rome and Reformation. Here we discover whether we are utterly dependent on grace for our salvation or if, while still in the flesh, still in bondage to sin, and still dead in sin, we can cooperate with grace in such a way that affects our eternal destiny. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for this word today. We pray that you would continue to write this word on our hearts, continue to work in us in a way that we can understand your grace and this gospel more deeply. Lord, I pray that our gratitude would increase, that our thankfulness would increase so that you would get more and more from us the glory and the praise that you deserve. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.